good afternoon, um, everyone. I'm really delighted to join you for what I think is an incredibly timely discussion on building resilience in Africa. I would actually start by acknowledging the recent earthquake that struck Morocco. I think that is a, a really sobering reminder of you know, the unpredictable nature of crisis and why it is so urgent to build resilience. Um, today's topic is of you know, in, in immense significance to sustainable development, not just in Africa, but everywhere. Uh, you know, we live in a world that is marked by economic turbulence, by environmental challenges, by political uncertainty. So you know, the ability to withstand, um, recover from crisis is really paramount. And so we're really grateful to our partners at the IDRC, at Global Affairs Canada, that made this event possible, but more than the event, they've actually supported the research that goes you know, beyond the event, and, and this research on the impact of global shocks on, on vulnerable economies, particularly um, in Africa. We've been doing work on resilience for a long time at ODI, and all of our work really highlights the importance of holistic, inclusive policies that can help countries weather storms and, and can help safeguard development outcomes and development gains. And so today, I think we have an you know, important um, conversation because we bring in together the research and the perspectives of global majority countries with global institutions like um, World Bank and the IMF. And that is through you know, deep um, collaboration with fantastic organizations like the Africa Economic Research Consortium, the Economic Research Forum, and the Partnership for Economic Policy. And I think this convergence of expertise and perspectives is you know, what we need to really generate inclusive, comprehensive discussions on resilience building. It, it's what can allow us to bridge the gap between rooted experience and high-level policymaking that can create you know, responses, policy responses and interventions that are more contextually relevant and, and more effective. Um, and so I think I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I think we have an opportunity to try and shape an agenda that can you know, help um, countries navigate mounting uncertainties. I, I think we have um, an opportunity to build more just, sustainable, um, resilient you know, economies if we share insights, um, strength and evidence, and, and inspire action. Um, so once again, I'd like to really um, express my sincere appreciation to IDRC, Global Affairs Canada, my colleagues at ODI and our partner organizations that really put a lot of time into um, generating uh, these conversations. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to a thought-provoking discussions on how we can weather the storm um, and ensure that we build greater res resilience in the face of uh, um, global shock. Thank you very much and back to you there. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Um, so let me now set up the um, um, the panel um, and who we've got, who we've got here. Um, so we're going to discuss um, resilience building and uh, and the prospects of African countries um, in, in the face of shocks. Um, first, on the basis of uh, of two presentations by two um, multilateral institutions. So first, we will have um, a presentation uh, opening remarks by Cathy Patillo. Uh, who is the uh, deputy director of the Africa Department um, at IMF, um, and will know about uh, the importance of the regional economic outlook, um, uh, for example, on Africa and a range of other publications that uh, they have recently under, undertaken. And, uh, and, and we're following up on the, the previous conversations that we've had uh, 
when you visited ODIAC uh, a couple of months ago. We will also have a presentation uh, by Andrew Dabal, who's the uh, chief economist at the World Bank, and, uh, and they've also been engaged, of course, in, in, in a number of publications, regular publications, but also um, yeah, monitoring publications like Africa Pulse uh, and others, uh, also setting out um, how Africa is faring um, in, the, in the current context of, uh, of shocks and also highlighting the policy implications. What we will then do is, is move the discussion to um, discuss the research findings of research that has been commissioned by the IDRC um, from organizations like the ARC, African Research Consortium, and the ERF. Um, and we have uh, two representatives here, uh, so, uh, Dr. Diana and Gumchai uh, from the ARC, and also um, uh, Dr. Ibrahim Albadawi uh, from the ERF. And then we're hoping to have uh, two, two further perspectives um, on, uh, on, on uh, the crisis, and in particularly, uh, we're looking uh, in the research on the mission by the IDRC in the Russia-Ukraine Russia war and how that's affecting um, African economies. We're looking at two perspectives. Um, one is on the gender perspective, so how are African women faring in the, in, in the, during the crisis? Um, uh, and we're also hoping to look at, um, at monetary policy responses. Uh, Phyllis Papadavis will be um, um, uh, discussing the gender dimension and uh, Victor Moringa, Professor Victor Moringa, will be highlighting uh, the monetary policy responses. Um, and so we've got a mixed um, uh, audience uh, uh, on, uh, here um, uh, in Marrakesh, and, um, and we've got a significant number of uh, online participation. Um, and uh, so we encourage you to, uh, to use the chat for any, uh, any comments that you uh, uh, like to make, and I'll, uh, I'll try and pick them up. Um, as the moderator of um, of the uh, of the event, um, so uh, I think we should first um, uh, have um, some uh, setting uh, frame uh, framing discussions, uh, framing comments by uh, both IMF and the World Bank. Um, so first, uh, first on we've got Cathy uh, Patillo, um, who uh, is the, uh, the deputy director at of the Africa Department, and so we're very interested to hear your latest thinking uh, on. Um, African economies, how they're weathering the storm, and also perhaps to provide some pointers as to how um, the IMF is supporting African countries uh, through, through the crisis, um, whether it's the, the COVID crisis, the Russia Ukraine war, and now of course the, uh, the inflationary pressures that are still, uh, still, uh, still persisting. So maybe I'll tell you, you can take them from, the, from there or you can uh, come here. Okay, 
sorry, uh, just getting settled here. Um, so good afternoon, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I enjoyed so much the visit that we had in London, um, engaging with ODI and the research um, network, and, um, which is really vital to having more of an evidence base, I think, for understanding the impact and how we're going to move forward on these discussions, which are you know, longstanding, but where now we have a lot more uh, developments and I think evidence that will help us to find our, our thinking. Uh, so I wanted to start with some um, update from the IMF on how we're seeing the outlook uh, and then maybe uh, talk a little bit about some sort of priorities on the resilience building. And, and of course, I'll mention how, how the IMF is supporting countries. Um, so we are seeing that, you know, of course, in 2023, the region has had a very difficult year. Um, but our message is a little bit more hopeful now because we're, we're stressing that with you know, strong economic uh, policy, there could be light on the horizon. Um, so in 2023, again, growth is going to decline in the region, the second uh, year in a row, we've got still very slow you know, international demand, really expensive, difficult to access financing, uh, what we were terming a, a, a funding squeeze, exchange rate pressure is still hampering the, the recovery. We've also seen, of course, the increased number of coups reflecting the really persistent fragility in the region. Um, so the, the second message is though that despite these challenges, many countries actually did work to the best of their ability well um, to weather the storm and 2024 looks somewhat brighter because of this. So we're set to see, you know, a growth uh, rebound um, in the region with, and it's not just, you know, a couple of the major economies, but for 80% of the countries then we'll see uh, an increase in growth, are set to see an increase in growth um, in 2024. And the non-resource economies, the more diversified economies are gonna continue to perform strongly. Um, so growth in these in these diversified economies is getting to levels, um, you know, relatively decent. Um, it's still not enough. Uh, per capita growth is slow. It's not making up for the scarring. It's not making up for the you know continued divergence, uh, but in the the right direction. Um, on some of the other other indicators, also we're seeing inflation falling public finances, you know, stabilizing, and we're seeing much needed subsidy reforms in place, in place in select countries, of course, Nigeria, but also Angola, Zambia, the Gambia, um, you know, in Nigeria, um, the fuel subsidies cost four times, had previously cost four times as much as they were spending on the, on the health budget. So this, as well as the exchange reform for the critical reforms in, in Nigeria, really bold reforms of the, of the new government. Um, 
So, you know, we're seeing these, these uh, um, steps uh, in the right direction and debt, um, you know, again, debt is, is, is high um, and there are incredible debt vulnerabilities, but this year we're actually going to see debt levels um, stabilize for the first time. They've been on an increasing uh, trend in the past uh, 10 years. Uh, so again, um, you know, some, some improvements. Our third message, though, is really that it's way too early to, to celebrate. Um, you know, in many cases, you know, inflation is still too high. Uh, government's borrowing costs are, are elevated. Um, exchange rate pressures are persisting. And this political instability is, a, is ongoing concern. And again, growth, um, even though it's picking up, is nowhere near what's needed to improve living standards, reduce poverty, uh, start to address the, the big setback we had um, during these multiple years of, of crises. Um, and so we highlight you know, a number of the, the policy priorities on inflation, on exchange rate vulnerability, on um, addressing debt vulnerabilities while having space for development uh, spending, and on, on improving living standards. Um, so just to mention for the, 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 the fund, um, you know, the, the, the IMF has, has been supporting to our utmost countries during these uh, difficult periods with our, um, you know, capacity development, with our policy advice, but really stepped up uh, financial support um, at a time where there was such you know, difficulties in need for, for counter-cyclical support given you know, um, the lack of availability of other financing, you know, low reserves in lots of countries. So, you know, in the past three years, IMF provided $55 billion to the, to the region with the SDR allocation and, and lending more than, you know, most, most other uh, years. And we have, you know, these new facilities also that to deal with the food shock uh, the, the food insecurity issues, uh, food stock window, um, four of the countries um, that uh, have received food shock windows are in, are in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, around 358 million. Um, the Brazilians and Sustainability uh, Trust, again, we've had 11 um, RSF programs, uh, uh, six of which are, are in Africa. Um, the latest one, uh, Morocco, um, the other five sub, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So helping countries to you know, build resilience um, to, to, to climate. Um, money, the money is small drop in the bucket given the climate needs. Uh, and so an object, one objective of the, of the RSF also is to uh, help countries catalyze more private climate or climate finance um, Private and uh, and uh, other other finance, um, and you know, I think there has been has been progress on this at the Paris Summit. Rwanda um, was able to make some announcements on uh, additional financing that they've been able to to um, mobilize for for climate action in their strong uh, policies and, and framework, uh, and and we're playing uh, this 
people uh, working with partners to to discuss all the things that all the partners can can bring um, to to um, these these countries. Um, so maybe just finally on resilience on resilience building, um, we'll get more into it. You know, I think in in depth, but. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a time where, given the, the shocks, and we're going to be in a shock, more shock-prone world, we're going to continue, as Sarah was saying, you know, with, with fragmentation and to have this uncertainty about how to navigate um, trading relations and uh, in relations more generally, we're going to have, you know, the impact of the China slowdown and um, uh, higher you know, impacts on oil prices or food food prices. So we're going to continue to, to face all of these shocks and, and, and Africa cannot change what happens in China. It can't change what happens to climate. It can't change what happens you know, to commodity prices. So what it can do is are all these steps on, on resilience building. And there's a premium, I think, on the basics you know, of, of macro stability, the, the, how to do it, is much more difficult now with um, the shocks and with um, you know high inflation, high debt, big uh, development spending needs um, going forward, but also for the for the catch up. So how to, to navigate these in a in, in, in have the basis of, of continued macro stability is much more more challenging. Um, uh, and then there, there's the continue, you know, the, the most important um, inclusive growth uh, agenda. Um, and on the inclusion side, you know, as as I was mentioning, countries are looking at um, how to manage their vulnerabilities, but um, protect social spending. Um, look for ways to. Um, step up social protection, social assistance to make that, you know, more um, uh, uh, shock um, uh, calibrated um, by, by having social registries and identifying people and linking databases and knowing who is hit by by shocks. Um, so that's that's on the on the fiscal. Um, and, and then, you know, there's so much potential really for, for more private sector uh, activity um, and utilizing opportunities like the African Continental Free Trade uh, Arrangement to boost competitiveness and growth and rely more on, on those internal opportunities uh, given the challenges of the, of the external uh, environment. And, and we can talk more about all of those. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. Um, you mentioned there's light on the horizon, uh, sort of the main message there. Um, you also mentioned that it's far too soon uh, to, to celebrate. Uh, maybe just one quick follow-up message on that. And I think you you said, well, we can't do much about all the commodity price shocks, the, the shocks that are happening um, uh, as such. The shocks will happen. The countries are exposed to, to shocks because they're, they, they deal with international economy, uh, rightly so. Um, but what we can do is to sort of see, uh, think about policies to build resilience against those. 
And one thing you, you mentioned in your presentation was that diversified uh, economies um, will grow faster. So uh, you also mentioned that IMF has stepped up. Um, maybe some would say maybe not, not uh, enough, but it could do more. But you've stepped up. But I suppose the question then is also becomes, have you helped, or can you help countries also to become more resilient and to become more diversified, to transform their economies? Um, and, and, and other ways in which you can provide that target support. It's just one quick follow-up question. Yes, so I, I, and I think that is a um, a key uh, advertisement then for the value of um, of diversification in helping build resilience, that those, those economies um, have been doing uh, better um, and are projected to do better um, so that, you know, if you look at, at the potential for doubling li living standards in these diversified economies, you know, it's, it's within uh, a, a lifetime horizon, whereas for the less for the oil exporters or or um, resource intensive, given the incredibly slow growth, um, the amount of time that it will take to double living standards is is just unthinkable. Um, so, I mean, diversification is a really uh, you know multifaceted, difficult um, process. There are countries that we look at for examples um, the. The debate right now, I think, lots of places is um, on industrial policy and whether, since there's a lot of discussion in advanced economies on the role of industrial policy, whether this is something that we should be, you know, providing more um, support and you know policy advice uh, to countries on. So it's something we're we're thinking about um, uh, internally, um, but. Uh, you know, the first step I think still is more um, uh, across the board, horizontal type reforms that um, are all the, the standard uh, reforms, um, but where countries, you know, who, who have struggled to, to eliminate those kinds of constraints like lack of um, energy access then, which is not going to allow um, new kinds of businesses to develop, um, are still struggling. Um, uh, access to, to finance. Um, so uh, another, I mean, an overall agenda, I think that we have helping thinking about countries uh, and diversification is build those domestic resources so that you will have some more space for investing in the things that do cost money. Um, and then there are things that you can do that don't cost money. Um, and so um, we're working with countries um, on in both of those areas uh, and thinking about some of these new questions. Thank you, very helpful. I'm sure we'll get back to the horizontal and vertical uh, policies um, um, uh, in a minute. Um, let me now turn to um, to uh, Andrew uh, Badan, so who's uh, who's on the uh, is online, and um, so you're the, uh, the 
uh, chief economist of the Africa region and in charge of a range of uh, publications around um, uh, economic performance of African countries and including um, uh, Africa Pulse. So I would be quite interested to, to hear your views, the sort of similar type of question that I, that I asked uh, Kathy Patillo as well. So Andrew, um, over to you. Maybe you can make, make your introductory remarks. Thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, uh, hi, Kathy. Hi, uh, Ibrahim. It's good to see you. <laughs> um, can you hear me? Okay, very good. So, look, um, so Kathy has already um, provided a really good overview of uh, what we see in the region. So let me be very brief so that we can get to the details of uh, the discussion. Um, so we too see that in fact, uh, the, the continents, and, and just for the record, um, I cover only Sub-Saharan Africa. So I think it's really important to, to keep that in mind. Um, uh, you know, they, the World Bank has a different kind of arrangement about what how it, it administers Africa. So, so I think whatever I'm saying here is really ref in, in reference to what we see in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, having said that, so, so we see a slowdown for sure, and a substantial slowdown, actually. We think uh, economic growth has actually declined from about 3.6% in 2022 to about 2.5% this year. So that's a substantial deceleration. And we attribute it to four reasons, right? One is a, a really big slump of the big countries in Africa. Um, so about six countries in Africa make up 65% of the GDP of the region. Uh, that's Nigeria. Uh, that's growing at about 2.9% this year. Uh, South Africa, which we expect to be growing around 0.5%. Um, um, and then, you know, Ethiopia, which has these issues, as everyone knows, uh, then Kenya, then there is uh, Angola and, and Sudan, which uh, we all know is, is going through a really difficult time. So, uh, all these countries have are growing uh, very slowly, so that's one reason. Um, and 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 there are many reasons why these countries are growing slowly. But I don't want to go into deep in, into depth in each one of them. We can come back to that. But but that's one reason that they're dragging down the growth of, of the region. The second, of course, is the rising instability, especially as you see in the Sahel and the Horn and so on. Um, and the third is just the number of shocks, and that's a subject, of course, of this of this uh, the number of shocks that have hit the region in recent years that have uh, created a real drag on on recovery. Uh, and and one of and and as a res as a response to that shock, of course, we see these elevated levels of of uh, of debt, which are making it difficult for these countries to mobilize resources in order to invest in core in core development issues like health education infrastructure and so on right uh, so they literally don't have any um any 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 space now for for borrowing in order to finance um um the develop, core development issues and then finally of course the global economy is in a in a slump in, in itself and it's not coming to the rescue uh because yeah, typically what happens is that these countries uh, very reliant on trade, actually, uh, for their exports and 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 and, and income, and and whenever you know uh, the global economy is in a downturn, uh, they they are huge uh, hit to their to their to their revenues. Um, so so that's those are the four four reasons now. But 
even though in fact if if you the second point i think that's important to remember is that even though 2.5 seems first of all it's low but it is positive except that if you actually account for population growth which also is growing at 2.5% gdp per capita is it's practically zero but it is it's been zero for almost 10 years now so that's the key um and and it's been you know so so the 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 subcontinent has basically completely lost a decade um and that that loss began in 2014 when we had a real downturn in commodity prices right so it just tells you how much this continent depends on these commodities for it is economic um survive right um and so that is that is the the the, the real uh concern that in fact this this whole issues around african development raises because if if you really think about it the the, the growth prospects and the, the three features of african growth is that first in per capita terms not just this past decade but historically has been low uh it's never really grown beyond 2% per capita at any one decade right that's one second it's never sustained over long periods of time um in in a way you would see if you look at the history of this continent you'll see these you know 10 year period 10 15 year periods in which you know they're growing at maybe 2% per capita and then there is a downturn of another 10 15 years where they're growing at zero and then they recover to two and then they you know that down to zero and so on and so on so it's never really sustained and because of that it's impossible to reduce poverty or even create jobs right so so th- that has been the the key feature and then of course the third reason the the third feature of african growth has been that it is too reliant on a narrow set of a commodities and a trading partners right so that's uh that's the that's the conundrum they face so w- one of the things what we 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 you know we argue in the report is that you know the the, the region really needs a new growth model um you know we, where you know really seriously think about raising this 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 trend per capita trend where you sustained this per capita trend Uh, the, the new per capita trend for decades and not you know every 10 or so years and where in fact you diversify the economy the economic base right so that's the and and we have you know we have we have work in the process trying to figure out you know what what, the, the, what how to do that but uh, uh i don't want to get into details of that because this is an opening statement but that's that's sort of uh, where we are now the the way the world bank is trying to help these countries of course are threefold one we to to build resilience one is of course as kati said um i mean the, the most important thing right now is to really maintain some stability particularly macroeconomic stability right so um and that means you know making sure that um you know inflation comes down stays low is maintained for a long time debt levels are either stabilized or they come down um they they put in place you know institutions of budget and debt management that are credible uh, and and stable uh, so those are some of the things that we're working with them on um we are of course working with them on building another you know one of the 
you know, there are two, there, so far there have been two engines of growth for the region, right? One is the external engine of growth, where they, they trade outside and then internal. I think one other, in, one the one thing that I think is missing is the the intra-African engine of growth, right? So, so one of the things that we're trying to help these countries with is of course, help them with, you know, integrate more at, at the sub-regional level, but, but, but eventually, of course, continentally. And so we have a lot of, projects on trade, particularly on opening up corridors, um, trade corridors, um, such as in the Horn of Africa, uh, Abidjan, Lagos, you know, the, the East African uh, uh, region and so on and so on, right? So that's one, one thing we're working with them. There is a big program on food security. Um, uh, fundamentally, one of the big problems about the lack of resilience in the region is just the lack of structural, structural um, Adjust, I mean, not adjustment, but uh, transformation, structural transformation of especially the agricultural sector, but overall the economy. So, so, and 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 at the bottom of that is, of course, the water management issues, especially for agriculture and 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 uh, and the adoption of technology. So, so that's something we work. So, do we, we have a program on food systems uh, and resilience program, uh, food security and uh, resilience program. Uh, and then finally, of course, uh, working with these countries to make sure that they protect social. Um, social spending, and we have uh, worked with them on social protection issues, and so on and so on. So, so in a nutshell, that is, and there's a lot to talk about here. But in a nutshell, that's the that's the story that I want. I thought I would I would open up with. Let me stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. That's um, that's also very very helpful. Um, 10 years of uh, 0% growth, um, GDP per capita on the growing, um, we need to focus on stability, but there needs to be a new growth model, uh, which, which is really important. And I think you also highlighted the, the African uh, integration um, uh, importance, so important African integration. I think that's also something that I read in the, um, in the IMF uh, special issue on, uh, on, um, on Africa. And so that's, that's quite interesting. I, mean, I don't know whether you, um, yeah, you can say my, my, a bit more on that, but it's, you, you're you're basically saying that the African integration is going to be helpful in in finding this new growth model. Y yes, precisely. So I think so. So for example, let me just give you an example of what happened in actually in two thousand eight when there was a financial crisis. Um, uh, and what, what happened is that some of these countries that are that Kathy mentioned, which are diversified, we also see actually that resilience really has a lot to do with the diversified economies, right? In West Africa, it's usually these countries like Cote d'Ivoire that have maintained some level of, uh, you know, resilience in terms of their, you know, protecting their growth levels. It's Cote d'Ivoire, Benin, Togo, Senegal, uh, that are not too uh, dependent on extractives. And then in, in the rest of the continents, Eastern African, you know, that around the lake, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, and so on. Now, I, I, I mentioned 2008 because one thing we noticed is that when the financial crisis hit, you know, a country like Kenya was able to actually maintain some level of resilience because it was able to divert its trading with its neighbors. Um, and so, and so that is important because I think deeper integration of these countries. What that means is first the markets are larger. The farms, maybe more established farms will enter because right now what we see is very small enterprises in, in Africa that dominate the scene. But if, if you have a much larger stable uh, market, 
you probably will attract much more established enterprises and that will create jobs and reduce poverty for sure. All right. You will probably have better competition and better product quality and selection. And you will you will raise the productivity in the in 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 the in this economy. So so there's a lot to like about the idea of um, actually integrating more and creating bigger markets uh, that are open. Thank you very much. I think that will resonate really well with also the findings from the from from the research. Um, and I would like to turn now to to those findings. Um, so these are two present presentations. Um, so first, uh, Diana, uh, maybe you would like to sort of discuss. Um, the uh, the modeling studies that you've been involved in, and also sort of think through the the, the policy implications of uh, of that for for resilience building. Over to you. All right. Uh, thank you very much, and I'm very glad to be in this uh, forum. Uh, we've been involved in a project, uh, uh, namely impact of uh, Russia Ukraine war uh, in the low income. Uh, countries and the middle-income countries. Basically, what we have done in this uh, project is to see what is going to happen if these shocks are there. So basically, uh, we are not ignorant of the fact that there are other factors that have been around, uh, like the COVID-19, and uh, we also have the climate change. So we have had uh, to do um, to my colleague Ibrahim present for the country case studies. For this one was at the macro level. We did uh, the global co uh, computable general equilibrium. Our colleagues PEP, thanks to them that they did this uh, particular uh, research. And at the African Economic Research Consortium, we did the global vector autoregression model. And sort of all these studies, we have done simulations and to see what would be the impact. Uh, for instance, for the uh, global vector autoregression model, we tried to see what would be the impact if we have the shock on the oil prices, on the food prices, and on the fertilizer prices, uh, coming from the fact that these are the major of uh, things that happened during the when the, the, the war started. So basically, we, we limited ourselves to that. But again, we are cautioning that we are not ignorant of the fact that the other factors still persist. So basically, what we find with this, we find that for the commodity terms of trade, there's a significant deterioration. We're also looking at real GDP. It is also a decrease there. We're also having inflationary pressures because of these shocks. And we also have a decrease in the purchasing power in many African countries, of course, looking at uh, the oil, food, and fertilizer price shocks. When we get to our colleagues in PEP, basically, we are looking at the trade distortions over time. And what we see come out clearly is that at one part of this, we find that this reduction, basically what would say a drop in uh, the economic growth, uh, basically what we, we, we've just heard from our colleagues. But again, we find that this much significant in the Sudan, Kenya, and Ethiopia, they are having a drop in the economic growth with more than 1%. And then when we go down and look at the consumption, 
we also noted that uh, much of the African countries, their share of spending is much higher. Of course, average, we have like 41%. So we find that some countries are, are having up to 60% and look like South Sudan. So when we get to the reduction, we find that there's a reduction in agri-food consumption and it is stretching from about 6% in real terms relative to the baseline. And this one, we are looking at the North Africa, all the way to about 2.9%, of course, which is observed in East Africa. And this one resonates with how much uh, these people are spending uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the food. And what about when you bring the shocks, you find that this kind of reduction is going to be so unimaginable. So when we get to the specifics, we find that uh, the, the, the spike in the global inflation, and uh, this one reduces the purchasing power of the population, it also decreases the total consumption. For example, when we look at Ethiopia, Sudan, again, and Kenya, we find that for like Ethiopia and Sudan, there's quite much significant you know, reduction in the consumption of all products. And this one is in the short run. And this one goes even up to 2030. The same case when to look at the reduction in the agri-food. Now moving fast forward, when we look at all these impacts, what do we recommend? What do we say that uh, these countries should be key to looking into? Uh, basically, we are seeing that in the short run and the long run, this kind of uh, impacts are going to persist. They are not ending very fast. So we, we've talked about diversification. One of the key things we are talking about here is, for example, if you're looking at the sources of supply of the food, uh, the countries should diversify the sources of supply. Basically, they also include domestic production and also they release the existing stocks and diversify also the import sources. And just to note that uh, quite a number of the countries are net importers, and that's where you find that they are quite affected. For the oil exporters that are getting more revenue, we sort of uh, recommend that they utilize the windfall to support the economic recovery in the short run, of course, and replenish their uh, policy buffers and well to reduce dependency on import energy, on the imported energy, which most of the countries are doing. So we also uh, recommend that they also diversify their energy sources. They can move towards uh, energy, I mean, renewable energy policies. And of course, what uh, my colleagues have talked about, they take uh, advantage of the, uh, the FCFTA basically the interregional trade. And just to finalize, um, we have talked about them doing investment and looking at productive investment because basically they cannot just, uh, we cannot just recommend policies like diversification of, of, of the energy sources. These are key priorities, getting to self-sufficiency agriculture, they need to invest in technology, research and design and so on and so forth. So basically, where do they get the funds from? Apart from looking you know, at, at, at 
at the World Bank, at IMF. We're also telling them to leverage the financing opportunities and break new grants. And one of them is uh, the uh, African Continental Free Trade Area, which I've talked about. For this one, they can facilitate the cross-border uh, payments in local currencies, if that is uh, done. And they can also reduce transaction costs associated with the multiple exchange rates. Uh, we've, we found that the exchange rates, basically, they are affected because of the war. And they also leverage on investment platforms to foster dialogue between government and investors. We also say that they should scale up domestic resource mobilization. I know this is quite a bit hard, but you're telling them to strengthen their public institutions and sort of do capacity building in these institutions so that at the end of the day, they'll be in a position to get more funding. They can reduce the illicit financial flows and also try to review tax exemptions among many things. And of course, we are also saying, while they're leveraging the financing opportunities to invest in this productive investment, they should increase access to financing at affordable rates. But of course, for this case, we are looking at um, supporting recapitalization of MDBs. And of course, we also look at, you know, like leveraging on the African banks, the VAT, procurement model for items of first priority, and so on and so forth. So basically, these are sort of the recommendations we are making. So going forward, we would expect that with these recommendations, as one of our colleagues said, we should simulate them and see how do they look like at the end of the day. Is it something that is going to work? So that is also an area that we look forward to do. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe I can just quickly um, follow up on that. It's basically you, 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 you should first uh, identified all the, uh, the different impacts or, uh, on different countries uh, from the same shock, um, which is quite important. Um, you then had a couple of policy implications. Uh, trade was, was one of them. And then you also said that um, the international community should break new ground uh, to support African countries. And you started with African content of free trade area. You mentioned payment systems, for example, regional payment systems that are being, being developed. I'm wondering, uh, also just going back to you and asking the question that I asked Andrew as well, um, Kathy, um, you, you, in, in your Africa publication, you basically say that, that if in, uh, implemented well, content of free trade area can lead to 10% growth, right? Or is the 10% increase in GDP per capita? Um, what, what are you doing in IMAP to, to support African integration? Could you just briefly comment on that? Yeah, so the ball is really in the country's court, country's court now to uh, implement what they've signed up to, right? Uh, so they've, they've uh, um, agreed already on, I think, you know, 90% of goods then uh, that they would be reducing tariffs on and um, uh, and then steps on the on the non-tariff barriers. Um, so in our dialogue, then we are always, you know, talking with countries about how they are working toward um, their their commitments. The, the behind the uh, border um, reforms are the much more complicated ones because those are the infrastructure, the, the things Andrew was talking about, the corridors, et cetera. Um, and, and that is part 
general agenda on policies that are going to um, help countries strengthen growth and um, and look as as we've all been saying, given the um, declining um, you know demand potentially with slowdown or China slowdown, um, looking for those opportunities uh, internally. On cross-border payments, also that would be something that um, from our monetary and capital markets department, you know, there is um, I'm sure discussion on, you know, if there are requests for technical assistance on setting up that kind of cross-border uh, uh, system. Um, We're doing quite uh, a lot of work on, you know, um, uh, Cross uh, central bank digital currencies um, and the, the links then between um, different types of uh, um, CBDCs and you know, mobile money and uh, on the CBDC side, you know, another one of these questions is the the value of interoperability then being able to um, have greater um, uh, ability for for Cross for interoperability within a country, and then cross-border uh, potential for better cross-border uh, payments. Um, so the yeah the agenda I think is is uh, is broad, um, but we see the first step you know is that countries to do what they've committed to do and step forward. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Diana. Shall we now turn to um, Ibrahim Al-Badawi, who's managed um, um, the, the country case studies, or the ERF has managed the, the country case studies. Um, and uh, Ibrahim is also a former uh, finance minister. Um, so maybe you can also comment from, from the, the range of perspectives on, uh, on, uh, on how to sort of build resilience um, uh, more generally, and particularly in, in, in the light of uh, huge food price increases, um, partly induced of both by Russia-Ukraine uh, war. So over to you to discuss the country case studies. Thank you. Uh, yes, actually, I think uh, building upon the previous presentations by Cassie, Andrew, uh, and Diana, uh, here we try to actually uh, you know, zoom in uh, to some specific uh, case studies, uh, which uh, was designed to be complementary to the, to the global analysis within uh, the macroeconomic, using the macroeconomic models. So we picked six countries, and we thought uh, these are countries that have the potential of uh, relocalization and building deeper uh, development corridors, uh, trade corridors, and so on. And these uh, countries span the continental Africa. So we have Sudan and Egypt, and we have uh, Morocco and Senegal, and we have Kenya and Ethiopia, and then Mozambique, South Africa. Uh, the, we first characterize the, the, the extent of the shock. The shock itself is much more challenging than the traditional commodity shocks, because it affects the entire, uh, you know, span of the, of the supply chain, uh, you know, the, the COVID and then, of course, later on the train, uh, they all affect a range of uh, intermediate uh, manufactured products that actually 
you know, generate inflationary spirals uh, in countries, especially those countries, almost all of these countries with varying degree of course, uh, are heavily dependent, uh, especially on food and certain some key inputs. Like for example, when uh, it's reading saying that Kenya is highly dependent on Ukraine, uh, you know, input for road building as well. Uh, but then all of them, of course, they depend on uh, imports of uh, grain from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and so that affects one key aspect of food availability, uh, which is, of course, uh, primarily uh, is impaired by the low productivity of agriculture uh, in, in, in most of African countries outside South Africa, but by international standards, productivity of agriculture is not as high and modernized. The uh, other aspects uh, of food security obviously includes accessibility, which was substantially also negatively impacted uh, by the shocks, by the, by the shocks, because actually it triggers inflationary uh, response that uh, make it very difficult for uh, poor and those households that are closer to the poverty line uh, to have access and created uh, a major crisis in a few countries. Uh, so the question then is, uh, what has been the response? The response by uh, many countries has been to, you know, to try to provide cash transfers, uh, such as what we did in Sudan, but also in Morocco and Egypt, uh, in other countries to subsidize uh, commodities, food commodities. Uh, but by and large, central banks have been reactive. You know, they have not been anticipatory. They didn't have the capacity to anticipate shocks like this, uh, potential consequences. And many central banks, uh, many central banks also were constrained by the nature of the exchange regime uh, that they have been adopting. And uh, this actually, uh, you know, is, is one area which is really macroeconomic reforms or macroeconomic institutions that are uh, much more uh, depth or agile to respond to shocks. I think that would be an important, uh, uh, you know, research in the future. And I have some ideas here that, that I don't know if you want me to share it now or later. Uh, uh, but, that, but then let us speak about the, 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 the potential of relocalization. Right now, if you look at just the pure trade trans, uh, trade flows and so on, uh, these countries do not trade much and the potential is probably limited. Uh, but the Maputo corridor showed us very clearly that with more broad-based uh, uh, regional uh, cooperation, harmonization of policy, building of public goods, regional public goods, uh, can actually be quite effective. South Africa uh, has helped 
I think Mozambique, according to the analysis that we, the case of study of South Africa, Mozambique, uh, to weather at least, uh, you know, an unnegligible part of the shop in terms of availability and accessibility. And we found that actually, you know, the, the kind of the baseline conclusion is that, you know, the potential is more than meet the eye in the sense that these countries do have the potential because of their geographic uh, contiguity to actually, uh, uh, you know, develop much more robust uh, re relocalization and uh, development corridor agenda. Uh, take the case of Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. There is a huge potential. The same also Ethiopia uh, and and the rest of East Africa, centered on Kenya, of course, uh, and then of course Southern Africa, the orbit around South Africa, Saudi, uh, and then of course you have here in this country, Casablanca is the financial capital uh, of the Francophone Africa. There is huge potential actually also to build this kind of uh, regional entities or regional cooperation that could help countries uh, weather uh, or at least limit the extent uh, of the shocks. So I think country studies would be very important uh, in the future to do more country studies, uh, neighboring countries. Uh, I understand that uh, you know, we might be able to do much more micro analysis on distribution of consequences of these shocks and maybe in the future. Right now we have one case study uh, that's being uh, under research between uh, covering Kenya and, and Egypt because of the availability of uh, micro household labor market surveys, but this would be a potential. The other potential which, uh, uh, you know, I could speak to is uh, related to the macroeconomic institutions, both in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy. So maybe I should stop there. Um, thank you very much. I, I think um, so the methodology was really interesting to look at these country pairs, and, uh, and you said there was real um, importance there to collaborate across, uh, across countries, and, and so really important to think about a policy response there. Um, and I think that also tallies well with um, with what um, uh, what Diana was saying and what um, what IMF and World Bank um, were, were were saying and also putting in their publications. So I think that's really something to um, to to highlight. Um, you also mentioned that that countries were a bit constrained in their policy responses, uh, so exchange rate regimes and some others. Maybe you'd say a bit more on that. So what helped? Policy responses. So, what is the sort of the governance uh, or economic space uh, dimension of resilience? Perhaps what, what, what caused countries to respond well and, and not not respond well? Yes, I, I think, for example, if we if we think of the uh, monetary policy, for example, in response to shocks, uh, we have the. West African monetary unions, the Central African and the West African monetary unions. These are currencies that chose to import macro stability or financial uh, monetary stability by basically institutionally fixing the exchange rate previously to the French franc. And now, uh, and of course, after the European uh, uh, monetary integration into the Euro. Uh, this have helped these countries 
you know, quite well for some time. But I think now, not now, even much earlier, there was a realization that these have also constrained the responses of these countries to shocks and also the long-term competitiveness of the economies of these countries. Right now, there are lots of discussion about uh, transiting to more flex exchange regime, regimes, but they are also institutionalized, such as, for example, inflation targeting connected with fiscal rules. Uh, in a context of transition from discretionary fiscal and monetary policy, or at least fiscal policy, to rule-based, uh, you know, fiscal and monetary policy, the experience of uh, some experiences around, you know, obviously there are issues of capacity, sophistic level of sophistication, and what have you. But a country like Chile would be an interesting country to look at in terms of this is a country that actually uh, you know, introduced fiscal rules together with uh, inflation targeting and organized a relationship between the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank, which is absolutely interesting in terms of harmonizing the two aspects, the two pillars of uh, macroeconomic policy. And uh, copper count for one third the economy of Chile, but the capacity of that country to respond to the shocks in the copper market, global copper market or international copper market has been quite remarkable. So I think there are possibilities to look into this from a macroeconomic perspective, uh, assuming that we are probably moving into a new normal of global shocks and global uh, supply, uh, you know, uh, global supply disruptions. And it is consequences. Uh, this is on the market, on the on the on the uh, uh, social protection. I think there are issues related to obviously which uh, uh, Andrew talked about uh, briefly uh, related to the role of, gover of governance, role of the state. Uh, what should the state do in terms of services? For example, uh, the Middle East uh, Department of the World Bank produced a very interesting report. Uh, identifying three uh, roles for the state. That the state uh, uh, should be, uh, you know, a service state that, uh, you know, the public sector should uh, a delivery state or a provider, service provider that uh, provide opportunities for the citizens, including a low level government, uh, civil society, to have a you know a space, and then as a regulator also to provide a space to the private sector. Many countries actually uh, you know economic reform such as exchange rate adjustment might have happened, but because it did not really uh, done in a were not done in a credible way that changed expectation and expectation, so that the private sector commit investment and so on to the reform. Uh, and so this, the private sector has to be given a space for the And then the last, uh, you know, uh, the last idea related to the role of the state here in a particular, in, in a very economistic way, is the evaluative state. But actually it is uh, a learning process for the state to evaluate the, the, the projects and to assess and so on uh, going forward. 
So I think there are uh, opportunities uh, to go beyond analyzing just the immediate consequences uh, of the shocks uh, in terms of anticipating how to increase uh, and to enhance resilience going forward. Thank you. That's also very interesting. So to to think about the institutional context within which policy responses are, are made, and um, and you highlighted, um, for example, the fiscal rules and inflation targeting, um, and the co collaboration amongst actors, uh, sort of fiscal and the monetary space, in order to um, to respond to shocks. That that's really in, really important. Um, earlier in your remarks, you mentioned also that it's very important to look at the distributional um, uh, consequences of shocks, and particularly. Um, the, the distributional aspects of of the Russia-Ukraine war, um, the impacts of that, uh, the distributional impact of the of of that shock in in African countries. Um, so my my, my colleague um, Phyllis Papa David has just released a paper on um, on how um, women in Africa are faring in the, in the context of uh, macroeconomic shock shifts such as the um, um, the Russia-Ukraine war. Which um, which is also based on on the work that that, that you're you're undertaking, and and I know there's a lot of ongoing work going on, and particularly in the in the um, in the um, uh, in the future, the phase two of the research, um, you're going to look more, much more in that. But perhaps um, uh, I'd, I'd like to turn to Phyllis Papa Davis to um, to present some of sort of the the, the key pathways through which um, women could be affected through uh, macroeconomic shocks such as the Russia-Ukraine war. And perhaps that may also then then lead us to to think uh, on to sort of a new research agenda on on uh, on distribution of consequences that you are I think interested in, and I will come back to you as well about new new research avenues in a minute, um, and Diana as well. Thank you, um, Phyllis. Thanks very much, Dirk. Um, so we are in a unfortunate situation where growth, global growth, is likely to slow to a sub. 3% rate, according to the IMF's estimates and a number of estimates. And the thing is that the nature of the price shocks that we are seeing uh, are not uh, gender neutral. Uh, inflation is still in high double digits. Um, it's, it's come off its peak in a number of countries, um, in a number of African countries, um, but it's still accelerating in a number of other African economies. And as has been mentioned, depreciations and devaluations are pervasive and persistent, which has also um, inflated food price inflation, which continues to be problematic. Um, so we know that uh, lower affordability and lower intra-household resources uh, hurt low-income women. Uh, and in the spectrum of functions, whether it be uh, as a consumer or producer or caregiver, there is a, sh a shock absorber effect going on. And so in the, the work that we did, we tried to just look at, uh, to progress the discussion around pathways, uh, pathways of impact. Um, and also importantly, look at economic equalizers for women's resilience in particular. So I think this is particularly important as financial instability is likely to continue in, in 2024 or even deteriorate um, with uh, a repricing 
in one asset market or another or continued dollar appreciation is going to be particularly problematic uh, if that if that actually occurs and we're also seeing elements of it right now um so it, it was mentioned before actually and I had planned to refer to this as one aspect of the discussion because I think it's um, uh, it's so important it, is that the IMF's own analysis suggests that a doubling of, of GDP per capita um, in a number of African economies, both resource exporters and non-resource uh, economies, is going to take several decades, depending on the country. And what's important about the work on gender impacts is that one essential catalyst for this in, in the literature more generally and in relation to women is uh, to expedite this kind of productivity is access to, to finance and access to education. That's the key spillover, really. Um, and uh, more specifically, what we looked at in, in the work, in the paper, was the scaling and the financing of an enabling environment. So 84% of blended finance vehicles uh, claim to integrate uh, gender into their strategy, gender equality into their strategy. And yet, out of uh, actual assets under management, uh, only 1%, only 1% is devoted to gender equity as a, as a main objective. Uh, and of that, only around 13% is devoted to uh, education, women's education. So what comes, uh, an aspect of what comes out of the paper is that financing and scaling financing to equalize for gender equity uh, is, is particularly significant. Um, so what our paper suggests really is the need to, for further analysis uh, and discussion to address the growing mismatch, the growing mismatch between the magnitude of the shocks and the funding resources uh, that are needed to, to boost uh, resilience in, in practical terms. Um, especially when you, as I said, especially when you look at the, um, the assets under management of um, institutional finance, uh, blended finance, and the vehicles that support that. Um, so we we uh, looked at those main pathways um, in the work. Uh, I'll pause there, Dirk. Thanks, Just just one one quick follow up question. Um, so um, I mean, there's there a lot lot in there. So it's about depreciations. Um, so that's that's an important aspect of the job as well um, that we've seen uh, depreciation um, uh, of African currencies, um, as well as a, a massive price increase. And you say that both uh, both have had a sort of an active impact on the on on the position of uh, of, of women in Africa um, in African countries. One thing you also highlight is the importance of gender norms uh, in in your paper, and perhaps you could say a little bit bit more on that. Um, so, how how gender norms are sort of mediating the the, the responses of uh, in in countries to 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 shocks? A bit like the institutional point that you've been mentioned about sort of the fiscal and monetary um, issues. There is also other, uh, from maybe more macro uh, 
uh, issues that are conditioning the responses. Maybe you could say a little bit more on that. So yes, one of the angles that um, we analyzed and one of the pathways that we analyzed is that fiscal spending and fiscal space or shrinking fiscal space is one of the mediators, the mediating factors where in times of crisis or in times of a shock, um, resources are, are typically, um, resources typically decline um, that are usually devoted towards um, safeguarding women's resilience. Um, young girls are uh, pulled out of school in certain case studies that we looked at. Um, so it's precisely the policies and the prioritization of um, women's resilience at times of a shock, right after the shock, uh, targeted fiscal transfers that make the difference and actually see a speedier economic recovery uh, in the aftermath of a shock or crisis. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, I'm not sure whether Victor is already online, probably not yet. Um, so he might come online in a minute. Um, so we can now turn to a bit of a discussion and also um, we can bring in the, um, uh, the audience here but also uh, the audience online. And, um, and I'm already seeing uh, uh, some questions uh, uh, appearing. Um, and uh, so we'll turn to the panel with, with one of the questions that has come in from uh, Peter Corti. Um, I think he's from ISR, director of ISR in, in Ghana. Um, he, he basically suggests that product and export diversification are two critical elements to promote resilience. And I think that has come out as well. So the diversification, uh, in, 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 in products, um, but also in terms of uh, locations. Um, so destination of your, uh, your, your both imports and exports. Uh, what are, are your specific recommendations to make this happen? Um, so I'll, I'll turn first to, um, to, to Andrew uh, from, from the World Bank. And I think also in your publication, um, you mentioned the importance, for example, of um, the gap in uh, labor-intensive export manufacturing, uh, manufacturing exports in Africa is one, one key issue that is a problem um, in African countries. And so then it's important maybe perhaps to, to diversify into uh, labor-intensive manufacturing. But what are the measures to, to do that? Um, and uh, how are you a bit more advanced uh, or forward-thinking than perhaps the IMF was? Because, I mean, Cathy was basically saying that they they had considered or are considering industrial policy, for example. Um, and my question is a bit sort of how you how you are you are looking at um, at um, sort of industrial policy to to promote um, export diversification because if that is so important for uh, both for transformation but also for resilience, then perhaps we should be really thinking about how to how to achieve that and what are the best ways to achieve that. What, what do you think from the World Bank's perspective is the most important uh, way to ways to do that? And I also turn to Diana and, and Ibrahim. Uh, to that as well. Um, over to you, Andrew. Um, th thank you. Um, so, so quickly, a few things. Um, I think there is already, you know, examples of successes of product diversification in African economies that have um, that that can be models. So so if you take a look at and, and so far, of course, these have been primarily diversification around agricultural products. So if you look at 
you know, the experiences of Ghana or, or even Senegal recently, they have actually diversified away from some of the traditional products that they used to depend on, such as, you know, groundnuts or cocoa in, in the case of Ghana, to horticulture. They have now become significant horticultural exporters, radishes, onions, tomatoes, and so on and so on and so on, right? So, so there is some sense in which there's already some diversity. And, and, and of course, in East Africa, you know, countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, um, Tanzania have entered into things like flowers for a long time, have been, you know, major exporters of horticulture, green beans, and so on and so on. So does Egypt, for that matter. Right. So a lot of these countries have started diversifying. But the key thing here in terms of product is branding. Right. You need to develop a brand. Um, it's how to develop branding products, either from origin or, or, or through you know, corporations and so on and so on. Right? So, so that that has not yet taken a deep root in the in the region, but it has to. And one way to actually do that. I mean, so one of the interesting things about and this is the second point I want to make. It's one of the interesting things about why continental free trade is important is because actually in continental free trade, they trade more in manufactured goods than they do in raw materials that they do with the rest of the world, right? So extractives, right? So the, 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 our own research, which is not yet, uh, it, it's still in development, but what we show is that trade, trade integration by actually reducing transport costs uh, on, on the roads, on the ports, um, and, um, you know, th that, that increases exports by almost 12% and increases GDP by almost 2% in the, in the region, right? So, so the, and, and a lot of that is going to come from one, you know, a lot of that's going to come from a lot more traded goods, which then, you know, um, create bigger firms, that uh, can obviously have an advantage in developing a brand in 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 themselves, right? So, so I think that is that's one of the things that is important. One, and then the other thing that we're promoting is basically integrated digital markets, sub-regional digital markets. Um, so we are investing a lot in that, and hopefully, that digitalization of firms in Africa has huge potential for actually increasing jobs and also growth, because right now. Even though 80 some 83 percent or so of African countries have access or at least are covered by you know G3 or G4 you know fourth generation kind of uh, internet access, only 22 percent of them actually use it for productive use. So if you can increase that productive use of of of, of digital technologies in a big way, especially by farms, you could also potentially increase a lot more. Um, trade and 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 and, uh, and and regional integration. So there's so many other things you could possibly do, but let me stop here. Thank, thank you. Um, maybe I, that's an excellent response. Maybe I can just link that response to to what Phyllis was uh, was saying, is that basically um, uh, Phyllis suggested that African women were, uh, were, were affected more by the shocks that we've seen as, as a result of the, the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, sort of depreciation, the food price inflation, and so on. In your response to the uh, to the shocks, Andrew, you mentioned that it's important to diversify, um, and uh, and that some is happening, but you, you're working to to support integration efforts. If women are hit harder, hit harder, is is there maybe some proactive? Uh, 
measures that you are considering to support women to take advantage of integration in Africa? Yeah, no, exactly. So, so two things that, that the World Bank has been doing actually to support integration of women. One is, first of all, the, if you look at border, border, border trading, a lot of that is typically done by by women. So, so if you look at this, there's a big border trade going on between Eastern DRC and and say Rwanda, for example, right? Um, and there's always a lot of harassment um, and 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 a lot of obstacles that are put in place of on place against women in in these trades. And so, what the World Bank has been doing is to have actually some project which allows for first of all making sure that the women report and first of all support them in their in their enterprises but make sure that they they report this kind of harassment and then it is reported it is recorded immediately and there's some response immediately and that that helps enormously so that they can so that's one the second the second is actually target specifically women owned enterprises in these SME programs right so the world bank has a whole bunch of small and medium enterprises programs which focus specifically at women's enterprises. And, and not only to develop those and to make them grow and be profitable, but in some ways, if, if there is trade integration, broadly speaking, what you would have is an ecosystem of firms, an ecosystem of firms where there are large firms, and then there are a whole lot of other firms that actually supply these larger firms. Um, and these suppliers may be small, but a lot of them will be women, you know, women-owned enterprises. And so integration actually creates a, a really vibrant and virtuous ecosystem in general that will be beneficial for women's enterprises. Let me stop here. Thank you. Um, I'll come back to Phyllis in, um, uh, after I've heard from uh, Diana and, uh, and Ibrahim on the question about diversification. Okay. Oh, thank you. Just to add on uh, what has been said, one of the other things we are looking at diversification is about the sources of supply um, uh, so that we don't just depend on importing food throughout. We can do this through domestic production, of course. So sometimes we have uh, some import sources we are just depending you know, on, on, on importing from one specific country, you can also diversify the sources. Uh, one of the things you can also try to diversify because in our study we have seen that uh, there's a lot of impact when it comes to consumption is to ensure that we also do some food policies whereby uh, we, we ensure that also the, the, the people diversify their food consumption rather than only relying on fused type of food, so they can also increase consumption of alternative foods, uh, which they have from both imported and domestic uh, sources. And the other diversification here we are looking at and to is for the energy uh, sources. Uh, uh, countries should look at what they have comparative advantage on, as um, like for example, the, the African continent. Uh, it's 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 seen that it accounts for more than forty percent of global reserve reserves of compact, manganese, and platinum. Hence, here we are saying the government should explore various investment opportunities. This way, they'll be diversified. Uh, diversified 
the pacifying their you know energy sources instead of just you know depending on electricity they can also go to renewable energy sources we are endowed with wind we are endowed with sun all these things you know solar so that we can be able to tap into this and at the end of the day you find that when we have these global shocks at least we have already cushioned ourselves and can reduce the risk at the end of the day so those are the kind of diversification we are looking at apart from leveraging on the uh, intra-African, you know, continental trade area thing. Absolutely, that's that's a, that's a key point, is that when we think about diversification, we, we often jump to conclusions that it's about exports, but um, it's good to remind us that it's, that it's about both imports and exports, and, um, and, and making sure that you've got the, you can rely on the, on the, on the wide range of, of, of um, importing sources is really important both for in this case food and um and uh and energy and that also comes clearly out of your your simulations that, that the structure of the economies the extent to which they depend on certain commodities and on uh, commodities from particular locations is really the determining factor in terms of uh, exposure uh, to the shock um diversification uh how can we achieve that well, okay. Actually, uh, let me let me follow up on Andrew's point about uh, you know the role of women uh, in smallholders agriculture that could act as intermediaries to larger farms and so on. Uh, a different project uh, funded uh, by IDRC and a lot of credit goes to IDRC on this on energy transition that we did. We found some very interesting uh, discovery. Uh, for the cases of Lebanon and Sudan, that actually uh, these two countries, they used to have uh, a parallel market in foreign exchange and, uh, and heavy subsidies of uh, non-renewable energy products. Uh, what happened is that uh, when reform happens, there was an explosion of demand for uh, solar panels by uh, small entrepreneurs uh, in SMEs in agriculture and other services and so on. Uh, so this is, I think it's very important issue that actually, you know, energy subsidy uh, can be quite uh, detrimental or an obstacle, major obstacle to the development of a smallholder agriculture deploying, uh, you know, the renewable energy. Uh, in terms uh, of the, this is one aspect there. In terms of diversification, uh, another paper also, uh, or other research actually, uh, uh, IDRC research that we did at the, uh, you know, at the ERF, uh, we had a major paper, in fact, a report on Sudan, which, by the way, I sent it to uh, Professor Indiguna, uh, who then became the Minister of Finance, because I thought it could be, uh, you know, uh, you know, to useful to other countries like Kenya, uh, given the importance of agriculture in Sudan and the and the very weak uh, infrastructure and productivity in Sudan, we identified uh, you know the the problems with agriculture and came up with a strategy. One of the elements of this strategy is is guided by the principle of how to make agriculture look like industrial. And this is a, a very important question uh, because, uh, you know, agriculture and, 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 and tradable services 
uh, are very important for job creation and for uh, you know you know filling in some gaps that will be uh, uh, experienced as a result of automation and an AI application and what have you uh, in manufacturing. Uh, and so we came up with this idea of identified 14 cities that has a diverse set of natural resource base in agriculture, from horticulture to animal production to, uh, you know, uh, grain and so on. And then the idea was that in order to develop agriculture and make it, you know, linked uh, strongly with uh, agribusiness, agri-industrialization, is to build development corridor or to at least facilitate development, uh, the creation of development corridors around productive cities uh, in, in, and, and provide considerable authority and space for local governments. Uh, decentralized developmental federalism, that is what we called in the case of uh, Sudan. So I think this would be uh, one uh, an idea for promoting uh, economic diversification. Very good. Um, Professor Naduko uh, is here. <laughs> uh, around, so we shall definitely give your report uh, or highlight that. But also I think it's really interesting that what you're saying is about these are targeted responses, right? Or targeted ways to uh, to think about agriculture. You want to develop corridors um, uh, amongst um, proactive cities. And, and that is basically that these proactive action is not, not just... Uh, it's, it's also a form of industrial policy, you know. Uh, you know. And actually, by the way, uh, Professor Njuguna came back to me and he said that he was going to look into this paper very carefully. So hopefully it might help also. <laughs> very good. Um, excellent. Um, uh, before I bring in uh, Victor, who's just, just come online, uh, maybe Phyllis, I don't know whether you wanted to, to respond um, or add any, any complimentary comments around um, the, the policy responses to uh, to increase uh, resilience, um, which which Andrew highlighted um, around trade trade issues, and particularly what how can uh, policy responses to increase resilience um, uh, maybe around the trade area in particular um, take into account the, the the position of women. The combination of uh, finance, uh, financing SMEs and scaling financing for uh, women-led SMEs in combination with um, boosting and supporting trade, I think is particularly important also from a, a economic agglomeration perspective. So just fostering, as uh, Andrew said, an ecosystem of companies that support each other. And in, in that context, uh, I think what's equally important is the fostering of inward investment that promotes the employment of women, the investment in women from a human capital development perspective as well in the multi-sectoral sort of in the agriculture sector and the export related sectors uh, as well. So my thought was around that agglomeration effect to promote resilience through ecosystems. Okay, thank you. And it's also yeah, bringing together um, different elements of the ecosystem, which is really, um, really, um, really important. Um, so some of the things that you've mentioned, Abraham and Dan, I will also be, also be um, uh, sort of finalizing quite soon in the coming few minutes. Um, 
uh, is is sort of also there, there's also important research agendas going forward. Um, and one area that you mentioned was the distribution distribution of consequences. And I know you you're you're going to do much bit more on that, and maybe you want to say something on that. Um, the other angle, and that you you already highlighted also about the um, the way monetary and fiscal authorities could work together to respond to crises. And that we may not know enough yet about the sort of the monetary channels or the, the financial channels of different shocks. So we, we often look uh, into um, the real sector linkages, the, the direct trade linkages. We also look at commodity prices um, and how commodity prices then affect uh, different countries. And we have got a good handle on that thanks to the ARC and the ERF um, research for a range of countries. Um, but there's also the, the other channels um, which are perhaps more difficult to 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 examine, which are about um, global monetary tightening, interest rates, monetary channels. And here I want to bring in uh, Victor uh, Morinda, professor uh, at SOAS, who has started some work around the way to which, in, in, the extent to which central banks can build, help build resilience to uh, to crisis. So maybe you want to say a couple of uh, things, a uh, couple of. Uh, um, comments on, on on that particular topic, and then we uh, after that we'll uh, uh, maybe one or two comments coming in from the, the audience, and then I'll turn to uh, uh, to Diana and Ibrahim, and then we finalize. Thank you. Over to you, Victor. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Dirk, and uh, uh, greetings to uh, members uh, in this uh, uh, conversation. Uh, and uh, apologies, I'm coming in late because of another viral function. I, I think um, these are critically uh, important issues. Uh, um, uh, the fact that uh, um, these shocks, uh, and we need to bear in mind that these shocks, uh, the waves of shocks go back uh, about uh, uh, 25 uh, years running in the in, in row. I don't know whether it's possible to share a screen here, right? A, uh, uh, if uh, if I could share, Not uh, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what I'm sharing about you know uh, what um, um, you know African economies have been going through. Uh, for this, um, yeah, this is taken from uh, one of my recent papers uh, where I'm looking at the shocks, including the uh, the recent shocks, but actually going back to the last twenty five years. Um, on African economies trying to ride through these waves. Uh, um, and the fact that these shocks have all been um, um, external, uh, uh, have uh, hit African economies when they are least expected. And that if actually one looks at um, uh, the nature of these shocks, uh, what they have in common um, is the fact of the coexistence of um, a market failure a, um, as well as uh, regulatory failure, and that if you track in any one of those uh, or any one of those shocks across time, and then see the response by each uh, central bank in particular, by how each central bank and monetary authorities have reacted within the African continent, uh, I think uh, uh, the monetary authorities and central banks have done a good job. They have reacted. Uh, of course, uh, uh, they are not homogeneous of degree one, so there have been a um, you know big differences um, in terms of the central banks and monetary authorities responding to shocks uh, using the instruments uh, um, available. 
Uh, and as we come closer to COVID-19 and recent shocks, uh, uh, some of the tools being uh, employed were the uh, macroprudential and the regulatory shocks. Um, in that paper, I identified 17 instruments uh, of those uh, regulatory shocks. This is a joint paper with Ease of Somalia, Laval, and um, Botiano at uh, the uh, Central Bank of Canada. And um, we identify those uh, 16 instruments. What is so interesting, uh, what I will share with you in this, is that a, maybe the pinpoint targeting of the combination of the instruments, of these 17 instruments, uh, depending on the nature of the shocks, is really what matters. So um, the idea would not be just blanket use of those macroprudential tools, but actually being able to combine any of those 17 tools and raise a shock, because the shocks may be a, um, a, a mainly targeting maybe a, you know, foreign exchange, uh, depleting foreign exchange reserves, and then the reaction. Uh, maybe a, um, uh, impacting a, on inflation, the recent shocks have, whereby uh, uh, inflation has gone up almost in each and every country. Uh, and um, uh, central banks have reacted uh, by hiking interest rates, a trend uh, that is a global trend, uh, but actually reasonably well. Uh, although, again, here, you see uh, a lot of um, a, um, a lot of differences. You also get a fear that a the natural resource endowments have not been a, um, a could not explain why there are different successes of different ways in which central banks are responding a, um, um, to uh, these shocks. But in general, uh, uh, looking at uh, the responses, if I look across a, a more than say uh, 50 countries uh, and you see, um, you categorize the responses, uh, say uh, within the last uh, 24 months, uh, you actually will reach a conclusion that um, there is something about the design, the architecture uh, of the central banks, the way they are designed, uh, that requires a little bit of re-examination. Uh, that uh, we need to consider the building blocks uh, uh, of these central banks. And we actually kind of identify six elements uh, of the building blocks uh, that um, uh, uh, we need to look into. Uh, and for um, uh, central banks and other regulatory agencies to uh, consider. Uh, and um, you know that includes, for example, a uh, how to integrate a uh, productively uh, uh, the um, rise of Pan African banks and the role they could play. These indigenous uh, banks from Africa uh, uh, that uh, are dominating the continent now. A recent innovation in the last twenty years with hubs uh, in uh, Kenya, hubs in South Africa hubs in a, uh, uh, Nigeria and hubs in Morocco. A, um, a, because it's the internal, the resilience of the internal financial markets and financial institutions that matter in the face of these shocks. Now, how can Pan-African banks, uh, being on the rise, how can they play uh, a leading role? That's block number one. A block number two is the building of peer-peer trust and especially the role of the interbank markets, which is sometimes ignored 
in the um, building of resilience. Uh, the way, uh, if the interbank market is segmented, we experience and we look at um, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Malawi, Zambia, if the, the interbank market is segmented, then resilience becomes a little bit difficult. Okay. And then building uh, block number three is again to going back to the big question of central bank independence and the degrees of freedom in all the classification, about eight classification of central bank independence, uh, and find those uh, central banks are independent, uh, have a little bit more leverage in responding very quickly. And so um, revisiting that question of uh, central bank independence, especially governance mechanisms, mechanisms and ability of the central bank governor to respond very quickly does matter. Uh, then building uh, block a, a number four uh, is of course the redesign of the FinTech revolution. And the fact that uh, central banks in Africa now at the mercy of this uh, revolution that is going to central bank digital currencies uh, um, um, I, I think this is an issue that has to be on the table uh, in terms of the migration uh, at central bank digital currencies, notwithstanding the digital divide across North and South in which Vintage comes in. Uh, and uh, a, another a building block is building on the climate risk mitigation and the flow of climate finance. Uh, and climate financing uh, either one as a financing channel and second, as a mitigation channel. Uh, and uh, uh, finally, uh, uh, how the um, uh, the prospects for regional integration uh, uh, for uh, central banks to come together, uh, that in a way, um, uh, one can look at it in a way. It could be a basis for contagion, but it could be also a basis for a, 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 a potential solutions. Uh, and, um, you know, how should this work? Uh, because maybe a uh, one size will not fit all. Uh, we do uh, um, create a synthetic currency uh, for the East African region and look at how the synthetic currency uh, 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 behaves within the threshold, okay, like the snake and the tunnel, uh, within the threshold to see how it moves vis-a-vis uh, vis the national currency. So we have a synthetic currency we have created and we see how it moves against the Kenyan shilling, the Tanzanian shilling, uh, uh, and uh, the Rwandan uh, uh, currency, uh, and uh, uh, how it also behaves when you uh, change the uh, the synthetic and include in Burundi and South Sudan. Uh, so I'm mm -hmm. positive, but final comment, Doug, mm -hmm. is that when we say central banks and multi uh, authorities respond, yes, uh, they, they have responded, they continue to respond. But we should not forget that, for example, the inflationary pressures have a big component of supply side elements. Okay, so you know the standard models we have used in the literature, whereby you look at the demand at the supply side, a production function, and the labor market, and uh, you then have uh, you know uh, inflation or prices determined on the supply side of the of the, of the model, and a uh, given the uh, the way a uh, um, Value chains, supply value chains have been uh, blocked uh, and uh, are not yet actually fully blocked on the African continent. Are not actually fully unblocked, you know, globally. Even in London, as you can see on the supply side, we still have some uh, problems. So the problem is not only the monetary authorities; it has to do much more than just demand management. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Victor. That's uh, that's fine. A very interesting 
presentation. So if you just a one word answer to to question, because I think this came up in one of the policy recommendations of the, the paper by Diana was basically to say that multilateral authorities in Africa could have done more um, to to respond to the inflationary uh, pressures. Um, do you think they should have done more or no, they've done enough or it depends? Just a one word answer. I, that's directed to me? Oh. Yes. Okay, okay, thank you. No, I think most of them have done well, to be fair. I think most of them have done well. Uh, uh, most of them have worked within the instruments they possess. Uh, and when we see uh, like uh, redesign and restructuring uh, or uh, rethinking the functionality of uh, uh, central banking, even actually using even conventional zero on central banking, the redesign becomes imperative. That is to make it much better, much easier uh, uh, for uh, central banks to respond to some of these shocks. Uh, but as I say, not one size fits all. There's a high degree of heterogeneity uh, among the um, uh, the central banks. Uh, and actually a quasi-experiment uh, would, you know, even if you actually, you know, divide the central banks in a quasi-experiment way by taking, for example, a resource in our countries and those which are not the resource. You know, and then the rate of response, those which uh, responded immediately within the first six months and those that it took one year for them to respond, okay? But once again, I think I would say they've done reasonably well. It's only that in most cases, the supply side and special packages for special groups, the gender, uh, small industries, uh, um, which were wiped out, you know, it was not forthcoming. Uh, okay. The demand side cannot do miracles. All right, thanks, Victor. Um, we need to close now. The meeting is um, coming to an end. Maybe just 30 seconds from Diana and Ibrahim on, on what's next. So you've heard this um, this, this, this discussion. Um, uh, you, you've laid out clearly um, Phase one research results, and you're engaged in in phase phase two. What are you taking away? Um, what, what 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 is the next stage on this? Maybe Diana first. Uh, all right, thank you very much. Uh, what we are taking away from this uh, first, um, uh, the, the the recommendations should be sort of specific uh, to the countries and to the populations because each of them affected uh, differently. So going forward, we are getting to phase two of this project, whereby we are looking at evidence-informed and gender-responsive. Now we are targeting groups, and also we are getting specific to countries. So basically, we are going to address the current impacts of the war on food security and enhance longer-term resilience, basically uh, to, to shops for vulnerable populations in low-income countries. So basically, that's how we are moving forward from where we are, and probably just to, because uh, we are looking at the macroeconomic part of it, we uh, analyze the effect of the macroeconomic shocks or mitigation policies on socioeconomic indicators at individual and household levels. Yes, probably I would hand it over to my colleague. Yeah, I think uh, what, what's next really, uh would be also to look into the distribution and consequences, which is this paper that is coming out, and explore possibilities for scaling up this particular kind of research by generating the kind of uh, surveys and data that would be needed 
and making this uh, data available to uh, because our two institutions are grassroots kind of research institutions, so it's very important to make it available to researchers, uh, universities, and so on uh, for research, in addition to whatever research that would be commissioned. And I think, as I said, the, the macro institutional aspects, uh, you know, of uh, how to enhance resilience at the macroeconomic level is uh, very, very important. Well, thank you. We're looking forward to the to the next phases. Um, I'd just like to thank now um, uh, sort of panelists. So, Cathy, unfortunately, I already had to leave. Um, thanks, Andrew, very much um, uh, for for your comments uh, throughout and your, your your presentation and your um, your, your your work. Uh, Victor, also, thank you very much for for joining us towards the end. I think that's also a very interesting, and important uh, uh, agenda going going forward. Um, so, we look forward to uh, to. Uh, to working more with them, uh, with, with ERF and ARC and uh, the IDRC um, on the next stages. Um, and uh, thank you very much for joining into the online audience. Um, thank you very much for people here and um, uh, looking forward to um, seeing you again. Thank you. Bye. And thank you, Dak. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.